be there, Nick. Yep, off you go, kids. Hey, turn your Bibles to Isaiah 1. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 1. Uh, we had quite a bit going on in the opening part of the service, so I hope you'll be patient as we maybe extend our service a little bit longer today. Um, I, I want to give our full attention to God's Word, and we have a lot to share uh, this morning. I hope you're ready to flip around to some different passages. It's unusual for us to do that in a service. We usually just stick to one passage, but if you're using a phone or tablet, you're going to be a step ahead of the game to search for these passages. But I, I toyed with the idea of putting the verses on the screen so we could just look at them, but I want to do the work of seeing them in our Bibles, and, and you'll understand that as we go. I want you to think of how many times in the recent past that you've received advice from someone who then pressed you to make a decision based on that advice. And I just jotted down a few things that I could think of. So you, you, were, you were pressed for a decision after someone gave you some counsel. So you're standing at, the, at Tim Hortons and you say, have you ever done this to the person? What do I want? You ever said that? What do I want? And the, and the person goes, you want a broccoli cheese panini. And I say, give me a donut and a coffee. That, you know, I don't want, I pressed for the decision and went against it. Or the mechanic takes your air filter out and says, look how dirty it is. Do you want me to replace it? And you have a decision to make. You're buying clothes at the store. I, mean, I don't know if this happens anymore. The guy says, hey, this tie goes great with that shirt, Derek. looks fantastic. Do you want to buy it? And you make a decision. Financial guy calls you and says, I've noticed you haven't been putting as much money into your retirement as you should be. Do you want to increase that? We have all these different decisions that we make after we're pressed with counsel. And some of them are weightier than others. Our focus throughout this whole month is going to be on the prophecies of Isaiah, specifically the prophecies that are listed in Isaiah 9, 6 to 7, where he's prophesied as being the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. God's word in Psalm 119 is referred to as his counsels. It's referred to as his testimonies, his precepts, his law, but it's also referred to as, as his counsel. You are holding in your lap or you are looking on your phone at the counsel of God, which is now pressing you into many, many decisions, one of which we're going to look at this morning. And we neglect the counsel of God to our own peril. His wisdom, I think it was a line that Nick and Sharon read, his wisdom is available, and that's our focus today, our banner is hanging there, his wisdom is available to everyone who needs guidance. Yet so many reject that counsel and resort to human counsel. Isn't that right? They reject the counsel of God and resort to either the counsel of friends, oh, you're a good person, don't worry about it. I know the pastor said that, but that's okay. Or we, we revert to our own counsel, our own thoughts, which are deceptive and sinful. This morning, we are going to examine a character in Scripture who is specifically pressed uh, with counsel from God, and he rejects it. He rejects it to the demise of an entire nation, though not to its destruction because of God's grace. The counsel given to this person was this. Be firm in your faith, or you will not be firm at all. I looked at all kinds of different translations, and a lot of them say, believe, or you will be insecure. Uh, be firm and established, or you will, you, will, uh, you will fall. I can't remember all the translations, but it's something like, either be firm in your faith, or you will not be firm at all. Now, I kind of misled you a little bit, because I said we're going to examine that character, and I honestly don't think we're going to get to that today. Try to. We'll see what happens. I want to summarize 
some of the major themes of Isaiah. Isaiah is like the third or fourth longest book in the Bible, yet with certain exceptions, chapter 6, chapter 40, chapter 53, much of it is very unfamiliar to us, right? Hey, what does Isaiah 16 talk about? What is Isaiah 28 about? What is Isaiah 33 to 40 about? We, we, we lose a lot of this because it's such a large and unfamiliar book to us. So I want to talk about three major themes before we get to the examination of this character that I talked about. And in these themes is where we're going to have to like kind of flip around in the, in the Bible a little bit. Theme number one. Let me give you three. Theme number one. God is a major theme of Isaiah. God is a major theme. In fact, there may not be another book that presents God in such a spectacular fashion and in a majestic way as Isaiah does. Let me give you four aspects of God's character that Isaiah specifically focuses on. Number one, he talks about the greatness and the magnificence of God. I told you Isaiah 1 just because I wanted you to get to the book. Look at Isaiah 40. Again, this is, please be patient as we flip to a lot of different passages. I really think it's the best way for us to do this. He is a great and magnificent God. While you're turning to Isaiah 40, just to quote another couple of verses, Isaiah 6 says, He is high and lifted up. The whole earth is full of His glory. In Isaiah 10, it says the powerful nation of Assyria is like a stick in His hand, a tool that He uses. Cyrus in Isaiah 45 is talked about a as a king who does the bidding that God demands. He is great and magnificent, the sovereign Lord of history, planning and purposing the entire human experience. Now, Isaiah 40 might be a passage that we're more familiar with in Isaiah than others, but here is some descriptions of the great and magnificent God. Verse number 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And marked off the heavens with a span and enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? What man shows him his counsel? Who sets God down and says, God, let me explain how this works to you? Who does he consult? Verse 14, who made him understand? Who taught him justice, knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? What about the nations? What about the powerful nations? They are like, verse 15, a drop in the bucket. Verse 18, what will you liken God to? What likeness will you compare with him? There is no one like God. Verse number 22, he sits on the circle of the earth. The inhabitants are like grasshoppers to him. He brings princes to nothing, verse 23. He blows on them, verse 24, and they wither away. The most powerful of men and women in the world and in history, God simply says, enough, and they are gone. Verse 26, one of my favorite sections in the Bible Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Talking about the heavenly bodies, the stars. He brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. The billions and billions and billions of them. He has a name for each one. And because he is strong and powerful, not one fails. Not one burns out without his power. Continues talking about his power that he gives to the weakness. But God is a great and magnificent God. There's more I could say about that. Second, he is also unique. He's the only God like this. Look one chapter ahead. I'll try to keep us close to some of these verses. Verse number 40, or chapter 43, verse number 10. Chapter 43, verse number 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant who I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand I am he. Before me, 
no God was formed, nor will there be any after me. I am the Lord, and there's no Savior but me. I'm unique. Chapter 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare. Let him, let him say he's like me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Let, let them come to me and say, hey, I'm like you, God. Let's see what happens to those individuals. Isaiah 44 verse, or 41 verse 4 talks about this as well. He's great. He's magnificent. He's unique. He is holy, number three. Holy. We talked about this in our Sunday night series a little while ago. Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Nowhere does the Bible give God three repetitive words like that to describe an attribute of his. He is nowhere called uh, love, love, love. He is nowhere called uh, wrath, wrath, wrath. He is called holy, holy, holy. And in fact, Isaiah's favorite name for Jehovah is the Holy One. I listed over 30 verses in Isaiah where he's referred to as the Holy One or the Holy One of Israel. It's also expressed, it was read in Isaiah 55 this morning, his ways are above our ways, his ways are higher than us. He is completely separate from all that he has made. He is this great, magnificent, unique, holy, separate God. And, and our image of this God is, it, it should be like, whoa, Right? This is intimidating. This is scary. This is fearful. This powerful, unique, separated God. I cower in fear before Him. However, the fourth thing about Isaiah's theme regarding God and last is that He is tender. He's a tender, gracious God. Powerful and mighty people do not bend to the lowly. You'll never see celebrities, I mean, if, if they are, it's like made national news, like pumping someone else's gas, changing someone else's oil. Can you imagine? Uh, you know, we don't, you don't see those type of things. They don't bend. They have servants that do that stuff for them. The powerful, the conqueror, they don't bend, but Jehovah does. And I want to show you this beautiful one in Isaiah 40. We'll try to stay in the same section again. Verses 10 and 11. What we just left, where it talks about the greatness of, and holiness of, and, and magnificence of God, before we get to that section, look at verse 10 of Isaiah 40. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him, and his reward is with him, his recompense before him. Look, look at this, though. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are young. Isaiah 57, 14 and 15 says he will revive the spirit of the lowly and the contrite. This powerful, strong, holy, separate, magnificent God of history, the only one like this, bends in a tender way. No more does he bend than when he condescends to take on human flesh to save us from our sins. Because these things are true of God, look at Isaiah 44, briefly with me. Look at Isaiah 44. Because these things are true of God, Isaiah presents the worship of other gods as absolute stupidity. It is presented as sheer folly to bow down to something that has been created. This is a classic and comical passage in Isaiah 44. You almost can't help but laugh at the sarcasm that is in the passage. Look at verse 9 of Isaiah 44. All who fashion idols are nothing. 
The things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified and they shall be put to shame together. Now here's the the explanation of how someone makes an idol. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arms. This guy who's making a god becomes hungry. He's creating a god. But he gets hungry, his strength fails, he drinks no water, and he begins to faint. What about wood? That's iron. What about wood? Verse 13, the carpenter stretches a line and marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house, a statue that's going to be worshipped. Cuts down cedars or chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it, part of this wood, and warms himself, kindles a fire, and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest he makes it into a god, his idol. He falls down into it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. This guy is stupid. Right? This is what the Bible says. This is foolishness. This is idiotic thinking. Okay, I'm going to cut down a tree. Half of it I'm going to cook my supper over and warm myself. Oh, this feels so good. And the other half that I just cut down is going to become a man that I'm going to bow down and ask to deliver me from all of my problems. Theme number one, God, in all of his greatness, in all of his glory, and in his tenderness, to worship other gods is foolishness. Theme number two is sin. Go all the way back to Isaiah chapter 1. Theme number 2 is sin. Chapter 1 begins with the condemnation of all that contradicts this wonderful God and his holy character. But it's not only the lying, stealing, murder, and oppression that God condemns. He is most disgusted with false, hypocritical, legalistic, ceremonial obedience. That's what disgusts God more than anything. He hates that sort of thing, and he describes it in Isaiah chapter 1. I, I, just as I was studying and reading this this week, the, the words just are burdensome even to me. Look, look at uh, verse number 2. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. When I get home today, I, I know I use the dog for a lot of illustrations. When I get home today, the dog's going to run to me. Oh, I, he knows me. He knows me. And, and God is saying, my people don't even know me. Animals are doing better at being loyal than my people, is what he's saying. And here's how he describes it. Sinful nation, verse 4. Laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers who deal corruptively, forsaking the Lord, despising, here's that term, the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And the reason they are separated from God is because of their their being laden with sin. These, These words aren't saying, well, these people are making a few mistakes, but they'll get back on the right track. They'll make a course correction and be okay. No, these are people who are burdened because of their, they are offspring of sinners, they are sinners themselves, and they are despising God, the Holy One. End of verse 5. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. Reminds me of Romans 3. There is nothing good in us. From the sole of the foot, verse 6, to the head, there is no soundness in it. There are bruises and sores and wounds. I mean, this is, a, this is a devastating condemnation. Look at the ceremonial uh, 
discuss that Jesus or that God has here. Verse number uh, thirteen: Bring no more vain offerings. Your incense is an abomination to me. You celebrate the new moon, Sabbath, etc. I cannot endure this. Verse fourteen: Your new moon and your appointed feast, my soul hates. These people thought they were doing good. Well, they're attending worship. They're they're commemorating special days. They're bringing sacrifice on the Lord. He says, I'm not going to listen. I'm hiding my eyes from you because your hands are full of blood. You have to be cleansed first before any of this legalistic ceremonial obedience will matter to me. There's so many people, especially at the holiday season, that will get involved in something religious because they feel like it's something important. God says, I hate all that. Fact. If we just look one chapter ahead to chapter 2, verse 12, humanity and all of its its pretension of having any sort of significance is really just pride before the Lord. This is chapter 2, verse 12. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, it will be brought low. And, and he's describing people who have lifted themselves up and have given themselves some sort of significance. And in doing so, in thinking that they are something, and, in, and human beings today, in thinking that we are something, then we neglect the counsel that God has for us. This is a damning passage. Look at Isaiah 30. And again, I, I, I kind of want to ask forgiveness every time we turn to the passages, but this is so helpful. Look at Isaiah 30 how this nation is described. They absolutely want nothing to do with God. They want him completely excluded from their life. Look at what they say to Isaiah in Isaiah 30. Let's pick it up at verse number 9. Isaiah 39. They are rebellious people, lying children. Listen to this. Children who are unwilling to hear the instruction. Another word for instruction? Counsel. They are unwilling to hear the counsel or instruction of the Lord. They say to the seers, don't see. They say to the prophets, don't prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. It's not that they don't want preaching. They just want the preaching that feels good, right? Don't tell us what is right. And in a sense, don't, if you're not telling us what is right, don't also tell us what is wrong. Tell us smooth things. Prophesy illusions to us. And he says, Leave the way. Turn aside from the past. Look at this. This is why I said damning. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Wow. We don't want to hear anything from him. For Isaiah, throughout Isaiah's 66 chapters, sin equals rebellion. In fact, the book begins and ends with it. One, two, where we start reading about the sinfulness, the, the ox not knowing its owner, etc., and in 66, 24, he talks about the, the punishment and the wrath that is going to pour down. How incredible it is that we as people who are the work of his hands should stand up against God and say, I don't want anything to do with you. Beat it. Right? This rebellion is an expression of pride and it's a refusal to accept our own depravity and dependence upon God. Warning. Right now, I want to give you a Warning. This problem is right here. And you could point to yourself. I am a sinner. Uh, Every tendency in me is to do what is opposed to God. I'm talking about my life right now. 
I am sick from head to toe. I am worthless before the Lord. I have no value in myself. There's, there's nothing good that resides in my flesh, Paul says. I agree with that myself. Our danger is to always look out there. Look at what those people are doing out there today. That's who Isaiah is talking about. Isaiah is talking about me and you. The Scripture is clear about that. All of us have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. So please don't make that mistake. Many remain, though, in that state of rebellion because the alternative of submitting themselves to God is as distasteful to them as anything they can imagine. I would rather remain in my sin, Isaiah 30, 10 is saying, I don't want to hear about that. Don't let the prophets, prophets speak to us smooth things. We don't want to hear about all that stuff. Submission to God is distasteful. Folks, we, ha- we serve and are under the... the, the uh, sovereign control of a holy, great, magnificent God. And yet we have rebelled against Him. All of us. Because of that, we come to theme number three. Theme number one is God, His holiness, His greatness. Theme number two is sin and its complete tainting of my and your life and the rebellion that is the expression of our pride. So then we come to the third theme, which is judgment and redemption judgment and redemption. Here is the key question that everyone should be asking themselves. How will God respond to my sin? How will God respond to my sin? I've often told you about standing on the porch of a gentleman four miles from here and talking about the gospel and asking him what he's going to do when he faces God. He says, God is going to put me on a timeout. God is going to set me aside for a few minutes. I grieve for that man. God's going to set me aside for a few minutes, and then when, when, my, when, he, when he's kind of had enough, he'll, he'll bring me back and, and allow me to enter into heaven. What will God's response be to my sin? Do we expect that this holy, great, magnificent, separate God is going to just say about our sin, that's all right. But here's the great gospel news. This, this, is, this is where you want to say amen. God is not content to let judgment be the only option. God's not content to let judgment be the only option on our sin. If we will simply turn from our self-dependence and our rebellion, He will redeem and restore us. I was just talking to someone, I I think it was this week, about how God in the Old Testament is viewed as the angry, judgment, wrathful God. Look at, I I think we're still in Isaiah 30. This, is, this blows my mind. If you look at it in verse number 11, again, we were just there, right? He says, we, the, the, the last sentence there, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Now you'd think God would do what to that person and people? It's like, okay, if that's the way you want it, zap! And he did judge a lot of these individuals. But look at verse 18. It's seven verses later. The Lord waits To be what? Everybody say it. The Lord waits to be gracious to you. He exalts himself to show mercy to you. Isaiah 52 and 3, very special section of Isaiah where it says he bears the sin of of many. The, The servant would come and do that. Understand this. Judgment is the inevitable end for all rebels. 
For Israel and Isaiah's people, it may have come in the form of defeat, disease, or disaster. For us, the judgment takes the form of death. Physical death first, which no one can escape from, but spiritual or the second death, which can, we can be delivered from. But salvation from this judgment of God is only a result of God's activity. No one can save themselves from God. Only God can save us from himself. I'm going to say it again because that's really good. You should have said amen there. No one can save themselves from God. No one can work. No one can earn it. No one can merit it. No one can overcome all of the sins that they've committed by being a good person. No one can save themselves from God. But God himself can save us from himself. And he does that. There's a passage that says, I look for someone to save. This is in Isaiah. I looked for someone to save, and there was no one. So my own arm brought salvation. Get this. He became his own enemy to save his enemies. What do you think was happening when God turned his back on his son? Separation. That is my enemy now. He became his own enemy to save his enemies who wanted nothing to do with him and don't want anything to do with him until he comes and draws us to himself. This is a great and good message. God cannot merely declare that sin's punishment be dismissed and say, it's okay, boys will be boys, etc. Transgression must be dealt with. But the great news of Isaiah is that we can be counted righteous because of the substitutionary sacrifice of another. And so then we ask ourselves, who is that person? Let's look at Isaiah chapter 42. A few more passages. Thank you for helping me by doing this. Who is the one who will come to atone for this sin? Who is it? It's Jesus. It is the ideal king, the promised Messiah, who will suffer not for his own sin, but for ours. In Isaiah 42 to 53, we have a section known as the, quote, servant songs. There are four of them. They are songs about a servant who is going to be anointed and come and do certain things on God's behalf. This servant, of course, is predicting Jesus of Nazareth. I want to show you some of the things that Isaiah predicts that this servant will do. In fact, in Isaiah 42, which is the first song, the very first word of Isaiah 42 is what? Behold. We don't use that word a lot. I've talked about this a lot. We don't use that word a lot. If a, if a prancing unicorn was outside right now, do you think I'd say, oh, behold? No, no, I'd say, whoa, what is that? Look, everybody look. That's the, it's like I'm trying to draw your attention to something that is totally amazing. And that's, that's, what this, that's what Isaiah is doing. Behold, the world doesn't pay attention to Jesus. And you, and you know what's even, what's even more uh, disastrous is that the church barely pays attention to him. Christians barely pay attention to him. We're talking about that tonight. Look at Isaiah 42. Just, we just got to skim over these verses, and I encourage you to read these servant songs this afternoon for your own blessing and, and encouragement. Look at some of these things that it says. Verse 2. This servant will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. This, this servant, when he comes, he's not going to break broken people. He's not going to snuff out the, the, the person who is just at, at the last of their strength. He will uplift 
He will be quiet. He will be submissive. He will comfort the weak and depressed. Verse 6 and 7 tells us he will be a light to the Gentiles. 7, he will open blind eyes. He will release those in spiritual bondage. That's where you and I were or are if we're not believers in Christ. Look ahead to chapter 49, the second servant song. Maybe a little more familiar with this one, not sure. Isaiah 49 Verse number four and five says, this is what the servant will say, but I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing. It will seem as if his ministry would be a failure. Many will reject him. It even says that in other servant songs, which, well, it says it in verse number seven. He will be deeply despised. He will be abhorred by the nation. If you went through these, and this is hundreds of years before Jesus of Nazareth comes on the scene, you, you make a list of all the things these servant songs say. You say, does Jesus fit that? Check. Does Jesus fit that? Check. How did these people miss it? They missed it because of their own rebellion and pride and their own unwillingness. They basically were saying to Jesus, we don't want to hear any of that. Leave the path. We, we don't want to hear your nonsense about how we're wrong and you're right. All these things are checkmarked. And Jesus says, you search the scriptures. I think this is John 5, 39. You search the scriptures and you're not realizing that I'm in those scriptures, that what you're looking for is me. And here I am. Look at chapter 50, another, the third servant song. Verse 5 and 6, a little more specific now. Verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike, an image of his crucifixion. I gave my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. He was not spat upon because he somehow deserved that or he was somehow a sinful man who deserved to be despised like this. He was suffering that in my place and in yours. I love verse 10 and 11 of this same chapter. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord. That's the counsel to us this morning. Let us forsake our way and trust in his name for deliverance. Look at the, the contrast to that in verse 11. All you who kindle a fire, just to, to get to the point, what is being talked about is those who attempt to please God with their own works. They're building their own fire. They're equipping themselves with burning torches. And he says, okay, walk by the light of that fire. See how that works out for you. And you will have that from my hand because you will lie down in torment. Here's the two options. You can turn from your rebellion and sin and trust the work of Christ to deliver you, the work of this servant, and you will be blessed and saved. Or you can trust in your own fire, quote, you can trust in your own work, and then you will lie down in torment. Judgment will come. Those are the options. Look at the beautiful servant song in Isaiah 52. This is the one that you know very, very well. Isaiah 52, the very end of it begins in verse 13 with his... Um, Servant, again, the servant acting wisely, being high and, exalt, high and lifted up and exalted. Here's verse 14. Many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. When people looked at the Savior when he was beaten and crucified, you couldn't even tell it was a man. You ever be on the expressway and you see some animal that was just totally, you're like, what was that? That's what people are looking at Christ. That's the beating the Messiah endured so he could, verse 15, sprinkle many nations. His priestly ministry I like verse uh, 2 of chapter 53. He grew up as a young plant like a root out of a dry ground. Those are terms that were used of him throughout the Old Testament. Branch and root and shoot and all this. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This guy 
could not be, the Messiah could not be identified because he was the best looking guy in Israel. It's not like there was something and people were like, whoa, there he is. He would not be on the covers of magazine. He would not be acknowledged by physical. And here's the point. The only way the Messiah can be understood is through the eye of faith. It is through the gift that God gives us to discern that Jesus is the only way. How did you come to know that? Well, I figured it out. I just, I, my own wisdom and cunning, I, I was able to discern that. No, you weren't. God himself gave you the vision and faith to understand that Christ is the only way, and then he even gave you the, the urge to repent of your sins, and then he gave you the gift of salvation. And then we see these beautiful sections, right? He was a man, this is verse 3, uh, he was despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now listen to the way I emphasize verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Here it is. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Verse 10 prophesies his resurrection. Verse 12 talks about his intercession for sinners through his blood. This is no mere human this is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So, key question number two, what are the conditions placed on me to achieve this redemption and avoid this judgment? Okay, are you found the lesson so far? Are you found the lesson? The themes, you got this holy, great, magnificent God, this tender God, but yet we have a people, me and you, a sinful a, nation, a sinful nation of Israel and then sinful individuals who are rejecting God, rebelling against him, are lifted up. They think they're very significant. They will not accept him. And so God's got to respond to that. He will respond to that in one of two ways. He will bring judgment. Thankfully, that's not his only option. He will also bring redemption. But how do I get that redemption? That's a question every person should ask. How do I get it? What are the conditions for me to receive that grace and forgiveness? How do I avoid that judgment that I so justly deserve? Listen to this quote very carefully. Too often, what passes for Christianity today are lives that are legislated by the good example of Jesus and frightened by the threat of divine punishment. The person who is afraid of sin because of hell is not really afraid of sin. He's only afraid of burning. He has no love for salvation. True faith is swallowed up with such a sense of the glory of Christ that the heart willingly chooses the pleasure of surrender. I know when you read stuff, sometimes it's hard to grasp that. Here's what he's saying. What, Christ, what passes for Christianity today is, is a, a good life, a moral life. I'm living after the example of Christ. I go to church, I carry my hymn book, I, uh, I uh, you know, I'm trying to be a good person, pay my taxes, whatever. I'm, I'm doing exactly, and, and this kind of good life, or this, man, I don't want to burn in hell forever, so please, God save me. Oh, shoo, I'm free, and then I'm going to live however I want. That's what American Christianity for the last 50 years has been, and, it's, and it's, it's deceived, I believe, many who thought they were going to heaven and woke up after death in hell. 
Because this, this is so great. Here's what true Christianity is. I am so amazed at the glory of Christ that I'm willingly going to surrender my life to his to have his life enter mine. Right? When I'm studying this in Starbucks yesterday, it's almost like I just want to jump up in the room and shout to everybody, do you know what I'm learning about Jesus right now? And I'm so overwhelmed at the Messiah and what he's done for me because I see myself in theme number two as the rebellious sinner, but then I see this merciful servant who's come to have his beard pulled out, his back beaten. My sins he bore. You know, I'm afraid of hell, but I'm more in love with Christ. That is what a believer must do to receive this redemption. They must abandon their own self-achievements and self-worth. They must renounce their pride and acknowledge their sin and say, I am like theme number two. Not the culture, not society. I am a sinner deserving of judgment. And I recognize God's right to rule over my life. I accept his provision of deliverance alone. I don't try to devise my own. I don't try to say, yeah, what Andy is saying is nice, but I also think i got to be a good person or baptized or give to the bus fund. No, you accept God's provision alone. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is salvation in no one else under, under heaven. There is no other name given by which we can be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Finish it with me. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It's very exclusive. You cannot have another way. You cannot have an add-on. There's not a, there's not a, there's not a salvation 2.0 that has kind of been patched in. You know how you get the warning on your computer, on your phone, do you want to do this update today? There has never been an update, nor will there ever be, to the plan that God has to deliver sinners. It only and always will be through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Everyone has to make that urgent decision. And Isaiah makes these wonderful appeals throughout his book, but specifically in chapter 1, verse 18, 20, come now, let us reason together. And you will be whiter than snow. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be erased. And what will there be? For those who refuse... They have no hope of restoration or relationship with God. Chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 5, verse 15. But what about when do, one does these things? What about when one is willing to be his servant? What about when one, because they are swallowed up by the glory of Christ, their heart chooses to surrender to him? What do they receive? Part of the verses were read even today. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. Isaiah 26, verse 3. Chapter 12, verse 2. Chapter 30, verse 15. Chapter 55, verse 6 to 9. Chapter 57, verse 13. These are the many, many blessings. Peace, joy, salvation. In fact, I, I, I read them all, and that's, I need to quote at least one to you to encourage you because this is the joy of all those who have received Christ. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, he has done gloriously, 
God is my salvation. I will trust. I will not be afraid. God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Ultimately, the entire book of Isaiah is an appeal to abandon our own foolishness. It was mentioned in our reading today. The whole book of Isaiah talks about the foolishness of human pride and pretension and accept God's lordship and his deliverance and experience the wonder of all that it was meant to be with life in him. Now, that's the end of the introduction. I was going to talk about this guy who was given an opportunity for counsel in Isaiah 7. We'll get to that next week. The blessing of Christ is available. Let's turn to one final passage, though. 2 Corinthians. We've been in Isaiah all day. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Some people, just for some reason, uh, don't want to submit to Christ because it's distasteful to them. They would rather remain in their sins. I hope that's not true for you. I've given the gospel as clearly as I know how to do it today. If you're in here today and you've never been saved or you're wondering if you are, boy, people would love to talk and pray with you and make sure that you are right with God, not standing under the rightful wrath that you deserve. We can talk to you more personally about how you can receive the salvation he offers. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 is going to lead us into a closing song, which we're going to sing every week of Advent as we close our service. For you know, everybody there, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace. That's a beautiful word. After all this judgment and wrath, which, is, which we deserve, He's a gracious God. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you by his poverty might become rich. This one who lived in the glory of heaven, worshipped by angels, in complete and total communion with his Father and the Spirit, substituted that for a period of time where he took on flesh and dwelt among us. Yet we, for some reason, are still enamored by the things of this world. John Newton is well known for amazing grace. He wrote many hymns. Finish with this. Let worldly minds this world pursue. It has no charms for me. I once admired its trifles too, but grace has set me free. Its pleasures no longer please. No more content, uh, content afford Far from my heart be joys like these, now that I've seen the Lord. As by the light of opening day, the stars are all concealed. Earthly pleasures all fade away when Jesus is revealed. These things no more divide my choice. You know, I don't live in the world. He's saying, I don't live in the world and with Christ. I bid all things depart because his name, his love, his gracious voice have gripped my roving heart. Here's the application. You have to be grieved over your rebellion and your sin and then be gripped by the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so indebted to you. We are so uh, amazed at your love and your condescension and your tender gift of Christ. Thank you for providing a way for us to avoid the judgment that we deserve. We stand as sinful people before you redeemed because of what Christ has done. If there be one in here today who is confused or uncertain or in utter rebellion against you, please, we ask the Holy Spirit to do a convicting work in their heart that they might receive Christ. May the rest of us be continually gripped by the glory and grace of Jesus, our Savior, who gave himself for us, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Take your uh, songbook. I know it's
it's, it might be a familiar carol to you, but it's based on the verse we just read. It's, I don't have it on the screen for us. It's page 11. It's thou who wast rich. It's, it goes just with the verse we just read out of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And it's a, it's a tune to a carol you might have heard before, so that, that will help. We're going to sing it as our closing song every week of Advent. We'll give it a try today. Let's stand and sing it before we're dismissed.